Okay, the story begins, friends. Let's do this. We are on page 17 of the sitter. We are going to do most of the page today. That is the plan. But let's just recap where we're holding. We're doing what's called the Kriyat Shema Katana, the miniature Shema. And this miniature Shema was prefaced by a prayer of us uh, remembering the covenant that we have with God. And that is our essentially saving grace. We pray to God, not in merit of our greatness, of our righteousness, of our kindness, because all of those are limited, but ultimately it's the covenant, it's the deal that came on God's end. We then stated how we're thankful for this covenant. We're ecstatic about it. We say, Ashrenu, how fortunate are we? And with that, we recite the Shema. We bear testimony to God's unity. We experience our love for him, our service to him. And then we finally get to page 17. There's a backstory in the Midrash about this prayer. This is actually a very old prayer sourced in the Midrash. Why don't we read the prayer first, and then I'll tell you the backstory. I'll read it in English real quickly. The first paragraph, you see it? Page 17. You, referring to God, were the same before the world was created. You are the same since the world has been created. You are the same in this world. You are the same in the world to come. Sanctify your name in your world upon the people who hollow your name. Through your salvation, our king raise and exalt our strength and deliver us speedily for the sake of your name. Blessed is he who sanctifies his name among the multitude. So here's the story. When the Jews would say Shema, the angels, the heavenly angels were quite impressed. Because when a Jew says Shema, what is a Jew recognizing? That God is relevant. Right? That's what we said. God is one essentially, it's English for God is relevant. And for a human being to recognize that is a big deal. And the angels are just ecstatic, like, wow. A human being could recognize that? A human being who's not in the heavens, who's not in a spiritual zone, who's in a reality, a perceptual reality, where God seems so absent, but can still muster up the courage and strength and faith to say, Shema Yisrael Hashem Echad, God is one. And the prayer that the angels respond to that is actually this one that we just read. Elijah the prophet, Eliyahu Navi, heard the angels reciting this prayer and taught it to the uh, Talmudic sage, Rabbi Noharai, who cited it in the Midrash. This is how we know this prayer. And essentially, it's explaining the Shema. This prayer is essentially an explanation. You could look at it as a commentary on the Shema itself. Let's take a look at the first line. And this gives incredible insight into how we view God as well as how we view our world. This is a worldview. This prayer has the ability to shift our worldview on how we see existence. You may have... Uh, see it familiar from our Tanya classes because we've cited it in Tanya chapter 20. Let's take a look back at the prayer. Where are we? 
Okay. You were the same before the world was created. You were the same since the world has been created. This essentially is describing the essence of God. If you had to describe God with one word, what would it be? Now, truly, you can't do that because God is beyond description. Description are man-made. A description means a box that I'm putting you in. And how could a human being put God in a box, right? It doesn't really make any sense. But if we had the ability to do that, let's say, let's give ourselves permission for a second. What would you use to describe God? Describe him with one quality that only he has and no one else does. Any thoughts? Think of one quality to describe something that God is able to do and no one else is. Well, I just actually just have one question on, on that second sentence. Is, is that a, sometimes you talk about how the translation doesn't do justice. And I, I kind of have a problem with the grammar. It seems like it should say you have been the same since the world was created. Is it really how that, how it says in Hebrew, is that really how it, the tenses? Um, I, I guess the, the, you are, is, is talking about the presence. I don't know. It, it, it neither are, are literal. <laughs> neither are exactly e literal. Either ways would be literal. Yeah. That's a good question. It's a good question. If I had to choose one word to describe God, it would be independent. God is the only true independent being. Just a, a, a week ago, we completed, actually literally a full week ago, the Jewish world celebrated the completion of the entire Maimonides Halachic Compendium. We read three, three chapters, we study three chapters a day of Maimonides' essentially encyclopedia on Jewish law, covering the whole gamut of Judaism. Omniscient. Okay, hold on. What's omniscient? Uh, omniscient means all-knowing. All-knowing. Okay. Okay, good. And we just restarted the beginning of Maimonides' code of law, right? The new cycle. And in the beginning, he talks about the mitzvah to know God. We have a mitzvah. It's one of the 613 mitzvahs to know God. So he says, well, you have to know God. Who is this God whom you must know? So here's how he describes God. He uses the term. Essentially, he calls God independent his existence comes from him all other existences anything else that exists comes from him he doesn't come from anywhere else essentially saying that god is independent and god is unchanging and because he's independent because he's unchanging He's therefore infinite because anything finite is something he created. He's therefore all-knowing because anything that there is to know, again, comes from him. Um, contrast that to anything else. There is nothing else that's truly independent. We're always dependent on something. Um, this is true scientifically. You need air. You need food. You need water. You need, <laughs> you need things. This is true spiritually. You need divine energy to exist. 
Um, but God is truly independent. And that's essentially what this line is saying here. You were the same before the world was created. You were the same since the world has been created. Nothing's changed. Because you're independent, nothing can phase you. It's not like, oh, now there's a world. My life has changed. <laughs> and since that is the case, what we say afterwards is you are the same in this world. You are the same in the world to come. In other words, where are you located? <laughs> Everywhere. There's nowhere where you're not. One of the challenges that I think atheists or people that proclaim to be atheists have, and I totally resonate with the challenge, is how can you dedicate yourself to something that is invented? <laughs> In other words, if we see God as changing, as fluctuant, as he loves me when I do this and he hates me when I do. When we humanize God, he's essentially a fictional character that humans created. How can you believe in that? In other words, an atheist is afraid of idolatry. Like there's a famous story where a religious atheist came and was preaching his theories, trying to get people on board. And the famed Reb Levi Yitzchak Berdichev came to the atheist and said, you know, we have a lot in common. So what are you talking about? We, our, ideolo our, our, our ideologies are so different. He says, no, that God that you don't believe in, I don't believe in that God either. And I would venture to say that most atheists who profess to not believe in God well, Judaism probably doesn't believe in that God either. It's very likely. The true essence of God has this incredible ability to be caring, to know you intimately, to be all-knowing, to be om omniscient, did I get it right? But the reason is because he's totally independent and the true source of everything. And therefore, in this world, in the world to come, everywhere. You can't put him in a location because that would be idolatrous. The ultimate purpose is to experience this God who is everywhere, where in a place where you'd think he'd be least noticed. <laughs> That's what the Midrash says. The Midrash, we quoted this in chapter 36 and 37 of Tanya, the famous Midrash that says the reason why God created the world was to create a, an, an abode, a home in the lowest of realms. And when we explain what does the lowest of realms mean, that doesn't mean geographically low, as if heaven was on the 10th floor, hell was on the negative 10th floor and we have to <laughs> we have to uh, the lowest of realms means a place where God is least revealed, least experienced by default 
We can experience him through miracles. We can experience him through prayer. We can experience him through mitzvahs and Torah study. But we create those experiences. And that's what God wants. In heaven, he's experienced by default. But he's just as present here as he is in heaven. The difference is we have to create those experiences. We have to open those windows. They're not open by default. But he's everywhere. And our job is to bring him here so we could experience him. And that's why we say in the next line, um, one, two, three, fourth line, sanctify your name and your world upon the people who hollow your name. Through your salvation, our king, raise and exalt our strength and deliver speedily for the sake of your name. Blessed is he who sanctifies his name among the multitudes. God sanctifies his name in this world. That's through us. We have a biblical commandment. Actually, last week's Torah portion. Two biblical commandments. One is to make a kiddush Hashem, to sanctify God's name, wherever we find ourselves. Essentially, showing that God is relevant wherever we may be. And one is to refrain from desecrating God. Again, it's essentially the same thing, showing that he's relevant wherever we may be. In Maimonides' Jewish Code of Law, he outlines the details here. There's two parts of sanctifying God's name. There's the classic being a martyr for God, because that's what is truly valuable. And there's parameters to that when we need to be a martyr, when we don't need to be a martyr. There's the famous big three, right? <laughs> but it, it could be more simple. If you are representing God, wearing a kippah in public, or you're willing to do something Jewish in public and still be a mensch, you're showing that God is relevant and that God's values produce somebody who's a mensch. Maimonides gives the example of somebody who's a Torah scholar, a, prestige, a prestigious sage, and merely smiles at somebody. That could be a kiddush Hashem that could show that God is relevant in this physical world. And were, they to, were he to look down at someone, that could be the greatest desecration of God. But the point is, we have the ability to show how God is relevant in this world because essentially that's what God is. He's relevant. He's everywhere. There's no place where he is not. Because he preceded the world. The fact that the world exists didn't change anything. It didn't remove him. It's not like we need to remove the world so God can be. God is still here. By default, he's more experienced in heaven. He's less experienced by default here, but we could create those experiences, and that's what our job is. And you know what it starts with? It actually starts with this meditation. We studied this meditation academically in chapter 20 to 25 of Tanya. We studied how God is truly everywhere because he's constantly creating the world. It's constantly an expression of him as the rays of the sun are constantly coming from the sun. And even though it's not experienced that way from the outside view, we spoke about the, we spoke about the academic side of this. What we're doing here right now is talking about the meditational side of this. And we're saying that we may know that intellectually because we studied it, but do we feel it? And that's what going through this meditation essentially is. That's why it's in the sitter. 
Let, let's actually together go through this meditation because this is really important. Because it, it, it's so important to not just, I, I, I'm guilty of this all the time, by the way. You study something fascinating, earth shattering, go, hmm, that's a good one. <laughs> I could use that in a speech. <laughs> let's, let's try to make it real. Let's think about this though, for real. Prior to God creating the world, there was just God. It's hard to picture what that means, but let's try to just accept that that's true. Now that God created the world, and there's this space where he seems absent because there's a world here, the world tends to hide him. He's still just as present and therefore all-knowing. And it's our responsibility to sanctify his name and to, and to show how relevant, show ourselves how relevant he is. That's essentially what this meditation is. It's important that we think about this in the morning. Reb Shmuel of Lubavitch, known as the Rebbe Maharaj, he was the fourth Rebbe in the Chabad movement. There were seven. He was a young boy, and he was once asked by a, uh, he, as a young boy, he was very into carpentry. So somebody offered him his carpentry knife, his carving knife. Uh, you know, an elderly gentleman said, you, I'll give you my carving knife if you can tell me where God is. He was a young boy. Without batting an eyelash, he says, I'll give you my carpeting knife, my carving knife, if you can tell me where God isn't. <laughs> he was so impressed to hear that from a boy of such a young age. Here's the knife. Now, should he be giving kids knives? That's a separate question. I guess he trusted his maturity, but whatever. <laughs> the concept of Chilul Hashem, by the way, desecrating God's name, the word Chilul has another uh, translation. Again, like you said, John, we don't trust translations too much, right? We've got we to take translations with a grain of salt. The word Chilul, desecration, has another name, has another translation. To carve out, to empty out. Do not make a Chilul Hashem, to not desecrate God, is essentially do not make a place where God is empty a place that is empty of God, a place that is void of God. And learning these ideas, it starts with the mindset. It starts with prayer in the morning. It starts with that paradigm shift in our own heads. I was listening to an interview a couple of days ago. Somebody was interviewing Rabbi Shays Taub. Rabbi Shays Taub is a Chabad rabbi in the five towns. There's a couple of Jews there, so they have a Chabad. <laughs> five towns is is like long island i should say there's a couple of non-jews there's there's like jews there there's a lot of jews there <laughs> so he is he, he's part of a chabad center there and he's a fascinating person he wrote several books on jewish recovery the jewish perspective on addiction and has a lot of different talks about that and he does a lot of different classes on, on Tanya. He's an excellent Tanya teacher. He has a website, soulwords.org. He ripped it off of Soulcasts. I'm kidding. <laughs> Hopefully he doesn't hear this because that could be awkward. This could get awkward real quick. So, <laughs> so I was listening to an interview from him. They asked him 
what inspired you to go on shlichus? What inspired you to become a shliach of the Rebbe? What inspired you to want to go out there? And you know, share the share with the world, like a, you know, essentially be like Abraham. <laughs> share with the world that there's one God and that this God is relevant. So he says, I'm gonna, I want to challenge you. And he says, anybody listening to this recording, learn one of the teachings of the Rebbe. Seriously, not just cur in a cursor, you know, study it for praying about it, meditate on it, internalize it. And then tell me afterwards that you don't want to go on shlichus, that you don't want to share this message with the world. <laughs> because essentially what we're learning here is that God is the essence of the world because he is its essential creator. The world didn't create God. God creates the world. He's a part of the world and therefore omniscient. Omniscient. Did I get it right? Omniscient. Omniscient. There we go. And it's our responsibility to tap into that. And the more we learn about that, and as part of prayer, prayer is not where we study that. It's more when we meditate about that, the more we can experience that. Which brings us to the next paragraph. Before we move on to the next paragraph, any questions, comments, thoughts, controversy? So is that where the one comes from in Shema? How the first verse ends with one. That, that, that's exactly what the one is. In fact, if you look back at the Shema, if you look back at the Echad, our sages tell us Echad has three letters. Aleph, which stands for the numerical value of one, referring to God. Chet has a numerical value of eight, referring to the seven layers of heaven plus earth. And then Dalit. Dalit has a numerical value of four, the four directions of the world. All of these are part of that echad of the Aleph of the One. All of these are part of God. There's another word um, where the letters are uh, representative of the beginning, the middle, and the end. And I can't remember which word that was. Emmet. Emmet. Uh, Emmet. Yes. Exactly. Same idea. Emmet is the same thing. Yeah. M is, is that why we add it at the very end when we say it? Exactly. When we say the Shema later on, we conclude with the word emet, affirming that all this is pervasively true, was, is, and will be past, present, future, beginning, middle, and end. Um, take a look at the second paragraph, the middle paragraph of the page. This is powerful. This is powerful. This is messianic. <laughs> what is this guy talking about? It's just a <laughs> it's just one of those paragraphs. Okay. Let, let's read it in English. We'll read it real quickly. Yeah. You are the Lord God in heaven and on earth, and a most lofty heavens of heavens. So, God, you're way up there. Truly, you are first and you are last, and besides you, there is no God. So despite how great you are, still, you're relevant. Gather the dispersed who long for you from the four corners of the earth. Let all mankind recognize and know that you are alone, our God, 
over all kingdoms of the earth. As great as you are and as lofty as you may seem, you're relevant here on earth. Let everybody in the world, by the way, Jews and non-Jews alike, let everybody experience your glory. Let everybody experience how relevant and how true you are. That's what's going to happen in the Messianic era. God is going to expose himself, remove the curtain, as it were. You have, and as we'll soon see, this is the same theme as Adon Olam. It's the same theme as the Aleinu. We cycle through these themes throughout the prayer service, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Just remind me. You have made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and therein, who among you the works of your hands, celestial and terrestrial, can say to you, what are you doing? What are you making? Our living and eternal Father in heaven, deal graciously and kindly with us for the sake of your great, mighty, and awe-inspiring name, which is conferred upon us. Fulfill for us, Lord our God, the promise which you have made to us through Tsefania, your prophet, as it is written, fulfill the, the prophecy to bring the end of days, to bring the Messianic era. As it's written, at that time I will bring you back, and at that time I will gather you. For I will make you renowned and glorified among all the peoples of the earth when I bring back your captivity before your eyes, says the Lord. Because God is the creator. And again, the creator means he didn't just create, but he actively creates. He's an active creator. He has an active role and participation in our existence. Being that he's the source of our existence, he's therefore omniscient, omniscient. I'm going to get that word right one of these days. Omniscient. There we go. Because he's totally <laughs> independent. And therefore, there's going to be a time where the world will experience this relevance on every level, Jew and non-Jew alike. I'm not saying that non-Jews have to follow our values or our value system, but the, the mere recognition that there is one God, that this God has a purpose for creation, because he is its creator. And that there's a time that's going to come soon that we're going to be brought back. This is the same theme as Adon Olam and as the Aleinu. The Adon Olam has two parts. We describe how great God is. Adon Olam, Asher Malach, master of the universe, king of the world. And we go and describe he has no beginning. He has no end. He, right? He's infinite. And then we say, yet he is my God. He is the life of my redemption. He is the my rock. He is my foundation. He's relevant to me. What is the sign of a truly great person? A person that can relate to anybody. You know, I, I think of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I think of people lining up every Sunday for dollars and the diversity in that line devout Hasidim and students um, people that are just happen to be in the area even non-Jews the diversity in there <laughs> because if you're truly great you can find a point of connection with everybody but that's a godly trait. That's a divine trait. God is so great, he can truly connect with everybody. And that is the same theme as the Aleinu. The Aleinu, again, is split in two. The first paragraph of Aleinu describes how great God is. He is the creator. His abode is in heaven. That's where he's most revealed. 
And then the second paragraph, yet we hope that there's going to be this time where you're going to reveal yourself down here. To fix the world with your kingdom and that you're going to be relevant actually in this world. Because that's the ultimate purpose. If there's one thing we walk away from this prayer, we realize that God's greatness doesn't make him abstract. God's greatness makes him all-knowing, omniscient, um, omniscient. I'm going to get it at the end of this class. Omniscient. Omniscient. And there's going to be a time where we're going to experience this. And it's our responsibility as Jewish people to be lamplighters, to make a kiddush Hashem, to sanctify God's name, and to make him relevant in this world. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it.